if you are genuinely excited about the thing that you're doing, people are going to respond to that and you just need to be as honest as you possibly can. Hi everyone and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. I'm your host, Rob Goodman. I'm a marketer and an artist. And on today's show, we've got Iso Rabbins. Iso is the founder of Forage SF and Forage Kitchen, and he runs these amazing pop-up dinners across San Francisco and the Bay Area called Wild Kitchen. And on today's show, we're going to talk to Iso all about how he got here, his kind of jump in, make it happen attitude around his projects, and also these kinds of social constructs that he builds up to make himself accountable to see these ideas through and make them happen. You're going to learn about foraging, you're going to learn about the food business, and you're going to learn about starting something out of nothing and getting a lot of people excited about what you're building. So I'm really glad to have Iso on the show. And let's get started. Iso, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Great to have you here. And uh, I want to kick off and talk a little bit about Forage Kitchen, which is your newest project. And talk to me about Forage SF and Wild Kitchen also. You do all these amazing experiences and projects in the culinary space. So talk to me about Forage Kitchen to start. Okay, well, uh, Forage Kitchen is kind of my newest project. It's an incubator space for food makers, so kind of like a co-working space for food. Um, So essentially, it's for someone who wants to start a food business but doesn't want to rent their own kitchen. And it's good for people starting out because if you're starting out like making cookies or something, you don't have five grand a month to rent your own kitchen space. And then beyond that, just like the kind of emotional aspect of being around other people who are also starting their own businesses is like a big part of it. Like I've used a lot. So I've done, you know, a lot of different food stuff. I've done a lot of pop-up dinners and I always use these shared spaces. And I kind of saw all the things that didn't work at so many of them. Yeah. Um, And that kind of motivated me to like create the space. Like I really wish I had when I started. You know, kind of like really, really like a home for your food business, right. you know, which is how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, are there other kind of aspects of starting a, a restaurant or cooking that are part of this community space? Or is it mostly just a free form space for them to come in and use the facilities and like you said, kind of build community with the other members of the of the kitchen? Uh, I mean, we do, so it's not a formalized incubator, you know, yeah. in quotes, but like we definitely do call it an incubator kitchen because it has, so we, we partnered up with this organization, the Foodcraft Institute that does these really cool, like intensive classes on starting a food business. So like two week intensive about butchery, you know, and they'll like take you by all these butcher shops and like, so they teach you the kind of like how to cut meat side of butchery, but they yeah. also teach you the business side of it, which I think is like something like too often ignored. Like it's something that I totally ignore when I started my food business. I was like, I just want to make stuff, you know, (laughs) but like you don't actually learn like all the permitting and like how to do a P&L and just all the stuff that I honestly like still don't know how to do. Right, right. So I have a business partner. Right, Um, right. But it's super essential. And so we partnered with them and they share an office with us and they teach all their classes there. So like the chefs using our space get a discount in their classes. And then beyond that, something I spend a lot of time on is like helping people promote their business. So it's like, we have a pretty good email and social media following. Um, so we try to like push out information about the chefs as often as possible. 
we do this thing called Batch Made Market, which is kind of a monthly, every first Friday we do, it's kind of like a little marketplace where you can come in and see like who's using the space. You can buy stuff from them. Nice. So it's, it's a really good chance for, we get like a thousand people through, wow. um, which is, well, first Friday out in Oakland. I don't right, know if you've right. been. It's like, yeah. it's like 20,000 people show up. Yeah, this is the first Friday of every month in Oakland. Yeah. It's like this huge kind of street party. Galleries are open. And so you're saying you also mm -hmm. are open and you have one of your restaurants kind of at the counter serving? No, well, we have, so we usually have about eight of them. Oh, so wow. We okay. actually, so we just had to change a little bit because the health department got mad at us. Okay. But we used to have it in the kitchen. So got like, it. basically, um, so we have a cafe in front where you can come. And so there's this dude sells barbecue up there like during the week. So he's selling stuff up there. We're selling drinks. We have music out in the parking lot. And then you can walk in, or you used to be able to walk into the kitchen and there'd be like lots of tables set up. Yeah. So like a kind of mini, I used to run this event called the Underground Market too. Yep. And so kind of like a mini Underground Market. Um, so it really gives people a chance to, like the way I thought about this space when designing it is like, um, I really want it to be like very porous. Like I think a lot of, like a lot of stuff in food is like, it's really this like black box, you know, mm -hmm. like you'll be sitting in a restaurant, maybe you can like, see the chef like through the door when it swings open or there's like an open kitchen so you can kind of see him cook a little bit right but, like unless you run a food business you don't really have access to like professional spaces you don't even get to see them so it's right. like i so it's really intimidating the idea of using a space like that's really intimidating to most people because they've never seen them yeah um and when i first started out i didn't wasn't professionally trained at all so like it was really intimidating to me yeah so what i really wanted to do is create a space like people could kind of come into on a regular basis so it's like there's a cafe in front and you can look back and see people cooking there you know we have the market so you can kind of come in and talk to people about their experiences um we're starting a podcast so yeah. uh so like you can kind of hear about what the real experience is of starting a food business and you mentioned the underground market, which started mm -hmm. years and years ago. Was part of the reason you started the underground market again to kind of break through those walls? I was reading that you were interested in in going to some farmers markets and kind of setting up shop and weren't really able to get into them. And that mm -hmm. kind of started you on this path to to creating the underground market. Talk about what it was and kind of what drew you to create it in the first place. Yeah. So, I mean, just like you said, like I wanted to, so originally when my business first started, it was totally focused on forage foods. So I was foraging and kind of organizing foragers, um, in a lot of different ways. I started this thing called a CSF community supported forage box. So like kind of like a CSA, but for forage foods and kind of my philosophy was to create a situation where you could forage full time if you wanted to. Um, and that kind of like the interest worked, on the customer side, but like the organizing foragers, just like right. it's not the if like foragers don't like to be organized. So <laughs> that was like a little bit of a struggle. And when was this? That was in like 08. Okay. Yeah. So I moved out here in 07 mm -hmm. from Boston. I grew up, I was born out here, grew up in Vermont, and then went to Emerson for film actually right. in Boston. And then moved out here and kind of just like met some foragers and just like started doing it. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, so I was originally selling forage foods to, in the CSF, but also just like back doors of restaurants. I would just like knock and cold call chefs. 
and I really wanted to sell in the farmer's market and kind of step it up. Yeah. Um, and, and, they, and I mean, you just got turned on to foraging. I was reading that you were visiting your dad in Eureka mm-hmm. and kind of met up with some foragers there and all of a sudden just got, this is after film school, which I yeah, want to yeah. talk about, but you just got really excited about mm-hmm. the idea of kind of living off the land and, and picking your own foods and all of that. And so much so that you just, yeah, you just started picking mushrooms and selling it to, to restaurants around the Bay area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I had never foraged at all actually before I came out here and then I, yeah, like you said, like my sit, so, uh, my dad lives up North and I have, um, three half sisters and they were up there with him. So it was up for like Thanksgiving or Christmas or something. And the friends of one of my sister's were professional mushroom foragers, so they would do this for a living. And it was just kind of this, like, amazing moment. that Because you kind of, like, like intellectually you understand that wild mushrooms come from the forest, but, like, you don't necessarily make that connection, actually, like, when you're buying them somewhere. Like, right. you just have this kind of, like, vague idea that they're from somewhere. Right. Um, and so it was really cool just to see these guys who actually did this all day. Like, they actually went in the woods, and they actually picked mushrooms, they sold them to people. And just to learn about the kind of, like, like the like the like the stream that takes a mushroom from the forest to you and all the steps in that line yeah and how many of those steps could be cut out you know so like like the guy who picks the mushroom so say you spend like 25 bucks a pound on like a chanterelle at whole foods or something the guy who picked that mushroom probably got paid like two dollars a pound and the reason is they're just like and it's not that anyone's like ripping him off it's just like you know it's like there's a there's a lot of steps, you know, right. people need to get paid to get there. So I, but I was like, well, why don't we just collect them? And then I'll just drive down to the city and I'll just like figure out how to sell them to somebody. <laughs> and then, um, and then I would split the profit with the guys up North, you know? So I would forge with them some, like I spent a lot of time driving up and down, just up and down one oh one. Yeah. So I, so I kind of started there and just kind of Started with mushrooms, and then the mushroom season is pretty short in mm-hmm. the Bay Area, you know, because it's only when it's raining. So from there, I kind of started getting interested in other forage stuff, you know, and um, and from there, I wanted to be selling more. So I tried to get into a farmer's market, and they wouldn't let me in because they didn't want to insure wild foods. Oh, wow. Um, just because the insurance is crazy for them. Okay. Um, so the wild foods being anything that's kind of picked outside of the industrial complex of, of, of food. Yeah. Uh, yeah. okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, like technically in California, it's illegal to sell wild mushrooms anywhere. So like if you, so you, when you were going door to door and kind of behind the scenes selling, like you were kind of under the, the, the radar of yeah, the law. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely I was, cause I didn't like, I didn't have any kind of permitting at all, you <laughs> right, know? Right, right. which I think is like the way you need to start. Yeah. You know? like I a, mean, I think yeah. this is a theme in your career and we'll talk about mm-hmm. it, right. Where you just want to like go out, make it happen mm-hmm. and then figure out how to kind of make the business around it or the organization or the structure, but at least mm-hmm. just like first follow that passion immediately and start like start doing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, cuz I think it's I think that so many people have a really good idea and look into it and feel like they have to like cross all their Ts before they take that first step and it just stops so many people because you look so I mean for example the underground farmers market the underground market I so kinda, that yeah that started when you weren't you weren't getting into these farmers markets so you you started your own basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking about all the other people who like for different reasons maybe couldn't be in a be in a market so it was mostly it was mostly prepared food so it was like the dude who um like makes pies or like the guy who has honey 
hive, you know, has hives at his house and right. loves to make honey, but like doesn't have his license or whatever and just right. like would love to sell him some. So, yep. so I did. So first I just kind of reached out to a couple people I knew who I thought would be interested. And it was like, first one was like seven people, seven vendors in someone's apartment. We found like the last day, like the honey guy was actually set up in the bathroom. He was like in the <laughs> bathtub selling honey, which was like. Which the health department was not super psyched yeah, about when exactly. they found out about that, That's like their dream uh, yeah, uh, image. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like that picture is like <laughs> probably on their like in their education educational material of like exactly. what you should not do. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was super safe, you know, super sanitary. Yeah. Um, and then so I just kind of started this little thing, and like 150 people showed up, and then we got some good press and then the next one like a thousand people showed up and then by the end we had like 2500 people showing up and, and this like was 100 just 100 vendors this was just word of mouth yeah 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 we got i mean we got some really good press the first time i mean i sent out i mean something that like i think that i've tried to focus on is you know you can have a good idea but you also need to be able to communicate that idea to people in a way that they i mean you understand like yeah, yeah. you know it's what you do too like um and it's so finding the way to talk about the thing that you love to do in a way that will make people, that will inspire people to be excited about you and about what you're doing, totally. you know, is something that I've always really tried to focus on. Be like, okay, I love this thing. How am I going to talk to, how am I going to communicate how much I love it to these people? You know, and I think it's as important as the thing you're doing. Well, do you, you know? spend time, is that something that's just intuitive to you? Or do you spend time actually being like, what is the story I'm going to tell around myself and around this project in order to really motivate people? Mm. I think for me, it's just been, I guess, intuitive. I think that like, I think that what I've always really tried to do is only spend my time or spend as much time as I possibly can doing things I'm actually interested in. You know, I think that if you get bogged down in parts of your business that really don't inspire you or you're working on a project that like you're just not that excited about people are gonna feel that you know and I think that if you are genuinely excited about the thing that you're doing people are going to respond to that and you just need to be as honest as you possibly can you know I mean yeah that, like that's what I try to do as much as possible like in my writing or when I'm talking about it like like trying not to be like too cool for school as mm -hmm. much as like you know as much i think it's like i think it's just intuitive to like or not intuitive but like it's just human nature to kind of hold back you know like because these things are a little weird and like you don't want people to make fun of you about it you know so it's like i mean because like what was i doing i was like going into the woods and like collecting mushrooms like you know it was like a little bit weird yeah but like what i really tried to do is just be like as honest as i could about like this is something i'm really excited about and these are the reasons i'm excited about it this is the reason that i'm doing it um, and I think that what I found is that really what people want is to be close to someone who's excited about something, you know, like, <laughs> right, right. And I think there's like, there's some, like, there's some truth in that. And if you can show like your true passion for something, right. Like people will be drawn towards it, you know, yeah. like sooner or later people will be drawn towards it. Okay. And so you were born in Santa Cruz and then you grew up in Vermont and you went to school in Boston at Emerson and film was kind of your your passion in college what uh tell me about kind of that experience of studying film and talk me through a little bit about kind of the you know complete shift more or less away from film to to food now well i moved away from santa cruz when i was like three okay and i used to come back in the summers visit my dad because he's always lived out here um i more or less grew up on the east coast kind of moved all over the country when i was a kid yeah um 
And then I went to Emerson for film. I think what I really wanted to focus on was documentary film. Um, and Emerson actually didn't even have a documentary program. So okay. like, I'm not sure why I did that, but it was fun. <laughs> I mean, it was a good experience for sure. Like kind of like learning about storytelling and, uh, just learning about the process of filmmaking was super interesting. And when I came out here, the thing I really was focused on doing is actually making a documentary about urban farming. Oh, wow. So I was like, I started to like get interested in like food and food politics and like the, like the life cycle of food, where it comes from and the kind of communities around food before I came out here. Yeah. And then I came out here trying to make the documentary about urban farming and, and realized pretty quickly that there were like seven people making that same movie who like okay. already had lots of funding. And I was yeah. like, okay, I actually had this moment with, have you ever heard of no novella Carpenter? No, no. She's, um, she wrote this book called city farmer. Okay. So she had, she's, she's like the old school, like urban farmer. Uh -huh. Um, and she, she's in Oakland and she has like this plot of land where she has like a goat and like some chickens. Oh, and, awesome. And she wrote this book, city farmer, just kind of about her experience. Um, and I went to interview her kind of like, as an informational gathering uh, exercise. And she was like, she was super nice, but like, she's pretty straight up, you know, like she doesn't mess around. I like her, <laughs> but she's like, she was like, Hey, you know, I don't want to like be negative or like dissuade you from this. But like, I just want you to know that like, you know, five people have interviewed me about the same thing, <laughs> trying to make a movie in like the last month. So just so like, you kind of like understand like where, where you're at. Right. Right. And it was this like real turning point for me in a lot of ways where it was like, like, cause I think that, you know, if I was super committed to actually making it, I think that I could have pushed through that. But I think that that was a moment, this like gut check moment where I was like, okay, actually, do I want to make this thing or do I want to make it because I've told people I'm going to make it? Right. And because I went to film school and after film school, what you're supposed to make is make a movie. Right. You know, and like I had this realization where I was like, no, actually, like, I don't want to do this. Like I want to do something else. Hey guys, I want to tell you about my next event for Making Ways. I'm so excited to be a part of the Invisible Talks conference on January 11th. I'm going to be interviewing Jesse Gannett, who is the CEO of Lumi, a startup that is revolutionizing packaging and the packaging process for brands. And I'm so excited to be joining this conference. It's all about the creative process. And there's going to be people there from IDEO and Pinterest, and there's going to be artists and folks from Autodesk and so many other places talking about their process in ways that are really going to give you the tools you need to succeed in your job, whether you work in design or business or you've got your own thing going. It's on January 11th, and if you go to invisibletalks.com, you can grab a ticket there. And if you use the code INVISIBLEFRIEND, you can get 10% off. I would love to see you there. I think it's really going to be an amazing conference. Ariana Orland, who was on the show, is the one who put this whole thing together. And I think it's going to be very inspiring and a day that's going to be very valuable for me. I'm excited to be there and for everybody in attendance. And I look forward to seeing you there. So check out InvisibleTalks.com and grab a ticket. Okay, let's get back to the show. Underground Market, how many years did that go on for? And I know you talked about great press, but it was featured in the New York Times, um, which was amazing. And so how many years did that go on for? And then when did you start to kind of formalize um, Forage SF and these, you know, these classes and tours you would take for foraging mushrooms and, and all of that? What was the kind of uh, the path there? It was kind of a lot of that stuff happening around the same time. So like in... 
2009, the underground market started, and that ran for a year and a half. So okay. that was once a month, and super fun, really great experience. I'm really glad it happened. Um, and after a year and a half, the health department. So, like you were saying, the New York Times. So we got we got in the New York Times, and the next month, the health department shut us down. <laughs> so it was like I just like got. I think it just got like a little too big to ignore at a certain point. And I heard that the it was like a rumor. No one told me it was necessarily true, but that there were underground markets. Something that was really cool about it that I really love too is like underground markets started popping up all over the world. Oh wow! Like looking at us as a model. So I'd get emails all the time, like from like Berlin and Amsterdam, Toronto, <laughs> like Boise, Idaho, Atlanta. Um, people who like wanted to start these similar things. There's one in LA too. Um, and what I heard happened is that other states were calling the California Health Department and saying, we have this thing. We don't know what to do about it. Like, it started in, in San Francisco. <laughs> like, what should we do? And I think someone just got yelled at. And they were like, "That this was like the end. So I got a cease and desist about that. Okay. But like, I love like, that's something I love about it. Just thinking about like, like all, it's like a little, you know, you start an idea and it's like this little virus, you know, like, yeah. it's, it's like. Whenever I walk into Whole Foods, I always see products from people who started the underground market as like, you know, just super newbies, had never cooked professionally before. And now like they sell this product or they have a restaurant, you know, constantly I see this stuff. Or just thinking about like, yeah, all over the world, there's like these. So whatever happened here and then all over the world is like these little like microcosms of it where like people have started markets and there's like all these people starting businesses they that they started at the market and then they're kind of like spreading this like word everywhere yeah you know it's just like i think that that's the, like it's the most fun thing about like having a new idea is like just seeing how it like takes on a life of its own in the world like yeah you have your time and then it's like if you can like push it out there you know it's it's like super satisfying. Yeah, I think that's incredible. That must have been, yeah, so satisfying to see not only is it resonating here in San Francisco, but it's spreading all over. I yeah. mean, were you just like, yeah, this is this is such a, a rewarding uh, thing for all of my my time and effort to know that that people care and mm -hmm. and that they want to they want to do it as well. Yeah. No, it was really cool. I mean, I really like I don't wish it was still happening i think it like had its time and place and like by the time it was over i was like so exhausted because <laughs> right. just like logistically it was so hard to do and it was like so much time fighting with the health department and like fighting with bureaucracy and trying to keep it open um but like i'm really glad it happened it was yeah. like a really nice moment it was like this like it was this moment somehow like you know because it was like 2008 big crash so many people lost their jobs. So many people are like looking for something new, like yeah. some realizing that maybe they didn't always love to be an architect. They actually want to do something else. And I think what was beautiful about it is it kind of gave people this moment where they could like step back and be like, oh, like I got some time. I yeah. don't have a job. Like, right. let's try this instead. Yeah. So that was really cool. And that ran, so that ran for a year and a half. And around the same time, I started the mushroom, the the wild food walks. So those have been kind of running since then. So we do uh, wild mushroom ones, wild greens, seaweed foraging, and sea foraging, like teach people about fishing and stuff. And then around that time too, I started uh, the wild kitchen, which was the like pop up dinner series, uh, underground dinner series, focused. Each course kind of focused on wild forage food. So again, the idea was to kind of like. 
like expose people to it. And like, I would always get it between courses and talk about like, this is, this is what's wild in this course. And like, this is where it came from. And I collected it out here and like, you can too. And like, chances are this is in your backyard. And you know, so just kind of trying to bridge that gap for people. So they yeah. don't think it's like something that's like out there. Right. You know, it's like right. something super accessible to them. Yeah. I can't wait to go to one of those dinners. It I sounds know. hopefully we have them again. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know. It yeah. sounds incredible. So yeah, yeah, your focus has been more on uh forage kitchen. That's why there hasn't been a dinner yeah. recently. Yeah. And what about cooking? Like, so when did that come into play for you were you always cooking uh did you 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 said you didn't kind of like take any training courses anything mm -hmm. right this is all stuff you learned on your own when did you start getting into cooking and spending so much time there uh i again i just kind of started doing it like i've always worked in restaurants but more front of the house uh just waiting tables bartending and always interested in cooking but it's like it it always felt like this barrier. Like you didn't like front of the house did not cross the line to back of the house and vice versa. Like, you know, there's like a little animosity there, okay. you know? So like, you know, I'd like grew up cooking. Like my mom is like a super creative kind of adventurous cook. So I grew up like kind of feeling like cooking was an experimentation, you know, that you could kind of try different stuff and like the things didn't have to be done the way that people said they had to be done. Right. Right. And I think that when I started foraging, I kind of started on my own, like experimenting with different recipes and just kind of like wanted to be doing more of it, you know, and didn't really, I didn't want to work in a restaurant because that didn't seem very interesting to me, kind of like making someone else's food. So I figured I'd try to do a dinner and see what happens. I did my first one on Valentine's Day and just kind of organized it. I had the idea like a week and a half before Valentine's Day <laughs> and then like tried to get everything together, found a location, which was like a warehouse that my friends were in. And then I didn't chef that one. I found a chef online, um, came up with a menu and kind of gave him recipes, foraged all the stuff and then like tried to sell some tickets. And it was like, <laughs> it was quite an adventure. It was pretty cool space. Actually, there was this one there was this one seat. So it was Valentine's Day. I sold like communal tickets, but I also sold like couples tickets. Okay. And the couples tickets were like all in these really interesting places. Like there was this like old speedboat in one <laughs> side of the warehouse and like a couple got to sit in the speedboat. And then there was like this little tent, like yurt kind of thing that yeah. one couple got to sit in with candles in there and like. It was cool. It was wow. And what's your approach to starting businesses and then also kind of getting people energized and kind of equipped to run off and start their own mm -hmm. and maybe even take me through a bit of the process with Forage Kitchen. We were talking about that it was about six years ago that you did a Kickstarter for it and that it opened about a year ago. So talk me through kind of both that like inspirational, motivational push that you give people or you talk yourself through and then the kind of reality mm -hmm. of this, these past years and how you had to set up this business. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it was six years since I did the Kickstarter, which was like just an incredible amount of time. And it's like, if you've ever done a Kickstarter, like, you know, that the day you're done, people start being asking, like, where's the thing? Yeah. People don't start asking you, where's the thing? Exactly. Right, right. And you're like, Oh, I'm trying to make the thing as much as I can. And they're like, I gave you $50. All I got was a t-shirt. Where's the kitchen? I'm so angry at you. Where'd you take the money? And I'm like, I still have the money. I'm trying to open the thing, you know? So it's like that kind of like stress starts. Yeah. Um, and I think that on some level, 
the reason I did the Kickstarter is because I knew that it was a pro I knew for was a project that I wanted to do and that I might not, and it was such a big project that I might not do it if I didn't do something like that. Like <laughs> if I didn't have a community of people forcing me to kind of go forward. And right. that's something that I try to do. Cause I think there's like, there's like, there's whenever I have a new idea, there's like a spark, you know? So there's a ton of fire there. When you first start, you're so excited about it. And like, all you think about is doing this thing and like, super focused on educating yourself and kind of creating community around it. And it's just natural that there's kind of like, you know, to every upslope, there's a downslope and you just like, you kind of have to accept that like in any creative process that like, you're kind of going to go down. And what I try to do is like set things in place that don't let me stop when I go down, you know? So I think the Kickstarter is a really good example of something that, made me commit to like kind of made me made my future self commit to what my present self wanted that self to do. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. cause I was like, if I don't, if I, if the Kickstarter works, then like I'm gonna have all this money and then I have to do it. And yeah. if I don't do it, I have to like leave the country, you know, <laughs> or I just like, I can't ever talk to any, like almost everyone I know gave to that Kickstarter. Right. Every time I saw anybody, they asked me what was going on with the kitchen. Yeah. So like, I just would have had to leave. And yeah. You basically just like put it out to the world. Like, Hey guys, like you're gonna, you're gonna be on, on me for yeah. this. Like you're gonna make sure that I see this through. It's like the most massive version of like, you know, tell your friend you're going to the gym tomorrow. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like tell your friends you're quitting smoking. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like with, yeah. with a lot more stakes because people are giving you money and all that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah. So go on. Yeah. And I think I try to do that kind of generally like in smaller ways. Like if there's some smaller task I need to do, I try to set it up so there's someone waiting for me to complete that thing. You know, if there's something that I think maybe is like something that I need to do that I'm like, I know I'm kind of going to drag my feet on. I set it up so someone's waiting on me to do something They like they need my product before they can do their product. Right. Um, and I think it's just a really good, it's just kind of a really good system that helps you just like, cause you gotta like, cause every project, especially a big project, there's so many steps and you just like, you gotta, just, if you look at the whole thing, you look at the top of the mountain and you're like, I'm never going to get there. But it's like, you just kind of look at your feet. I mean, like you just kind of like keep stepping forward and, and like, sooner or later you'll get there. So I wanted to ask if you ever received any amazing advice that kind of helped push you over the hump of starting any number of your things, or maybe there was like a low point in one of your projects that you weren't sure if you were going to be able to climb out of. Did you ever get advice or mentorship that kind of helped show you the way a bit? I would love if I had like a quote from a person that like, cause that would be, they would, it would be, I would love if there was a moment in my life where I felt like there was one thing that kind of made me realize that I could do it. You're, I think, you're with great power comes great responsibility. Totally, yeah. Moment. You know, like how beautiful is that? <laughs> um, but I think the reality for me is like, like I've always kind of like search for mentors. And I think that what I've found is I kind of try to find them in everybody. So like, Everyone has, so every idea I ever have, if I'm excited about it, I talk to everyone I meet about it. That's like all I talk about for a month is like, oh, I'm starting this new thing. And they're like, because everyone's like, oh, what are you up to? And I'm like, oh, well, this thing is what I'm excited about right now. Um, and and what you're, I, you're using that as, it's almost like subconscious, like market research. Totally. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Because you get like, because everyone has some piece of 
an idea that is bet that will improve the thing that you're doing, you know, and like, or everyone has like, like, I think everyone has such amazing ideas and they just don't trust themselves with it, you know, or like everyone's super creative and they just don't trust that they're like a creative person, you know? And like, so what I really try to do is like, just bounce things off everyone I meet. You know, and sometimes I'll get like a huge thing from somebody and I'll be like, oh my God, I now I see this in a totally different way. Or some, but often I'll get like kind of little helpful pieces of advice. And I think that what that does, even though I don't have the kind of like one crowning mountain moment, um, I think that I just kind of try to learn from everyone around me all the time. And I think that what it helps you do is like not necessarily search for like, there's no one answer, you know, like everyone has like a piece of the answer. And I think, and everyone's super smart. And I think that I try to just like engage as much as possible with as many people as possible. And kind of like the world is my mentor, if you will. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> and for people listening, would you be able to walk through maybe some super initial steps they might take to start looking at, the things surrounding their homes or their places of business a little different in terms of foraging, what they might see on a regular basis that they could see with new eyes and maybe grab and, uh, and cook or at least start understanding the environment and what's at their fingertips a bit better. Yeah. I mean, I think that a really easy one, and it was actually for me, the thing that like turned my eyes is miner's lettuce is it's an edible green that's really all over the place it's it kind of looks like when it's young it looks like um it's kind of heart shaped and then when it gets when it gets mature it's kind of a like lily pad shaped really succulent green yeah um, and i actually had this moment when i was at my dad's where like every time i'd go up to my dad's there was this kind of like lawn you know it's like it was like i was like oh it's grass you know you don't really look at it yeah and then once i started researching foraging i went up there and realized it was like all miners lettuce and this stuff chickweed okay and i think that it's a really good thing because it does just like you said kind of like change the way you start to look at nature by realizing that like this green thing that's around all the time is actually edible and you'll see it like when it starts raining you'll see it probably in your backyard probably in your front yard like probably in every park you go to, it's like, it's everywhere. Wow. And, and I think it's a really good, it's like a really good intro, like just kind of helping you to understand that a lot of the stuff around you is edible. Yeah. Um, and it's really good too. I use it in salads all the time. It's really like, it's really sweet. They call it miner's lettuce because the miners ate it because it had a lot of vitamin C in it. Okay. Which is a little fun historical fact. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's a good, I feel like that's a good like 101 first step. Awesome. Yeah. Isa, thank you so much for joining the show and wishing you tons of success with the kitchen and all of your established projects today and all the ones that are going to be coming up for you in the future, I'm sure. So thanks so much. Cool. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks, yeah. Rob. Okay, that was my conversation with Iso Rabbins. Iso, thank you so much for joining the show. I really enjoyed talking to you and learning all about your work in food and in business. And you guys should definitely check out foragesf.com. You can learn about the foraging classes offered there, about Wild Kitchen, and of course about Forage Kitchen and all of the businesses and restaurant entrepreneurs who are working in that space today. And be sure to subscribe and check out Iso's podcast, his new podcast as well. 
You can find show notes and links to all the things we talked about today on makingways.co. And you should also subscribe to our newsletter there where I share updates and events and lots of news and interesting articles from our conversations here on the show. Don't forget to write a review on iTunes if you've been enjoying Making Ways. Please head on over to iTunes and write a review. It's a really great way for people to discover the show. Making Ways is engineered by Jim Heffernan at TTO Productions. Our intro music is by The Sandworms, and we've got some music by Jim Heffernan in the mix, too. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.